turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, where we'll pick up at verse 1 and read through verse 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him over to Pilate the governor. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come this morning to study Your Word together, we come to listen to the voice of Your Holy Spirit. For we do not come to this book as literary critics seeking simply to examine its prose, we come as disciples of Jesus, seeking to hear the voice of our Lord, that we might know more of the gospel by which we have been saved, that we might know more of the excellencies of our God. And so, like your ancient servant, we come and we simply pray, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, chapters 26 and 27 of Matthew's gospel are incredibly dark chapters. It's almost as if Matthew has brought us into the events of the night in which Jesus was arrested and condemned, and suddenly his, his gospel goes into slow motion. There are times in this gospel in which the, the story has proceeded on at, at a fair pace, in which we have covered great distances in just a, a few verses. But here, as, as Matthew brings us into chapter 26, it's as if suddenly the brakes get put on and we, we slow down radically. And, and slowly and methodically, Matthew brings us through every single event of that dark night, and slowly He makes us take a long and hard look at them all. And it is a hard look. At this stage, we're only halfway through, but already by, by this stage, our hearts are they're crying out for relief as we, as we read this, as we study this, as we look into the depths of depravity that are convening in these dark hours. 
it's, it's almost too much for us. We want to cry, uncle, and we, we wish that Matthew would, would hurry us on, that we might see something beautiful, because this is dark, and it's hard, and it's, it's horrible. Not all the gospel writers do this. As you know, the four different gospels are written with four different purposes, all of them ultimately, of course, written to compel the readers to faith in Jesus, but every one of the four gospel writers doing it with a different emphasis, reaching a different audience, doing it in a different way, not all of them bring us to contemplate these things so deeply as Matthew does, but but Matthew will have us proceed slowly through this night. And he keeps us here just a little while longer, and, and he knows what he's doing. Matthew knows how hard this is. Matthew knows how heartbreaking all of this is. Remember, this is not written by an academic historian. This is written by a man who lived this night. And Matthew keeps us here a little longer because he wants us to see, he wants us to be confronted by the absolute horrors of the sin that are laid bare on this, on this night. It's hard. It's painfully hard. It's almost unbearably hard. But it's necessary that we see the true ugliness of sin so that we can understand then by contrast and comparison, the absolute beauty of the redemption that is found in Jesus. And so, Matthew will have us stay a bit longer here. And as we come to our passage now, morning has broken. The physical darkness of the night has lifted. And with it, the judicial murder of Jesus is beginning in, in earnest. Jesus has, of course, been arrested during the night as that lynch mob came out, led by Judas, to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had been taken in, in the darkness of the night down by the mob. They had crossed over that Kidron Valley. They had come into Jerusalem. They'd been brought into the high priest's palace, and, and in the darkness of the night, Jesus had been subjected to that farcical trial in which Caiaphas, the high priest, along with the scribes and the elders, had desperately searched for a crime that they could pin to Jesus, something sufficient that they could present to Pilate as grounds for Jesus' execution. That the Romans retained the sole right to condemn anyone to death. It was a matter of control, a matter of retaining ultimate authority, especially in potentially difficult regions like Palestine. And so, for the religious authorities to complete their nefarious plan, for them to kill Jesus, they had to come up with something that would convince Pilate that Jesus was worthy of death, that they had to come up with an accusation that would hold up under Roman law that would implicate Jesus specifically as an enemy of the state, 
as a threat to the peace and stability of the region, as a threat to Pilate's own position. And so, uh, during the night, as we have seen, witness after witness were brought, and none of them could agree. They could never produce that testimony that is required. And the whole thing, you remember, came to a head as Caiaphas really in, in what can only be read as, that, as a fit of frustration and desperation, had demanded that Jesus tell him if what the crowds claim was true, was he the Christ, the Son of the living God? And do you remember Jesus with a profound dignity and peacefulness simply responded, you have said so. And then without defense or explanation, Jesus proclaimed to the high priest that in just a little while, the veracity of that claim would be evident for all to see. It's what they needed. And so Caiaphas, tearing his robe, appealed to the council, and they condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy. Now, Pilate's not going to execute him for blasphemy. We'll see this more next week, but it was enough they could twist this so that they could present Jesus as a threat to Rome, as a rival king to, to Caesar. They now have what they need. And so, as day breaks, as the dawn breaks, the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council, it, it formerly convened. Right, this has been their loophole. We've seen that this whole, everything that they've done through the night has been contrary to their own laws, to their own rules, to their own regulations. They weren't supposed to meet in the high priest's palace. They weren't supposed to, to meet in the middle of the night. And so now that morning has broken, now they call to their secretary and they say, Mr. Clark, do we have a quorum? And formerly, formally they meet, and they ratify everything that they had done in the darkness of that night, and they take Jesus and they hand Him over to Pilate. But suddenly the narrative breaks. And Matthew takes us away from the chief priests and the elders. He takes us away from Pilate. He takes us away from Jesus. And he takes us to look at Judas. It's, it's an odd thing to do, but he does it to grab our attention, right? We've seen Matthew do this kind of thing before, writing as he did without verse numbers and chapter divisions, without really punctuation and paragraphs. If Matthew is to grab the attention of his readers, then he has to do it in the way that he is telling his story. And so, he does it by this dramatic, almost breakneck shift in the narrative flow. Here we are. We're running down to the cross. We know where we're going, and then suddenly he breaks from the narrative flow of the story he's telling. He breaks even from the chronological flow of the story that he's telling. Right? The chronological flow takes us from the high priest's palace in verses 1 and 2 to the governor's residence in verse 11. But here we suddenly find ourselves now in the temple. Nobody's in the temple at this moment. And so, this must have been something that happened later. 
But, but Matthew shifts it, and he brings it in here, and he inserts it here, because he really wants us to pay attention. He wants us to see how the story of Judas resolves. He grabs our attention by tripping us up as we, as we read. And he grabs our attention because he wants to conclude the story of Judas, and he wants us to see how that story resolves, especially in the light of what we have just seen of Peter at the end of chapter 26. And the first thing that we have to notice is that at this moment, there is very little to separate Peter and Judas. Now, yes, we, we have more background with Judas. We know that he has been growing increasingly indifferent to Jesus. He's been growing increasingly hostile to Jesus. We know that even from early on in his discipleship, there was an alienation between Judas and Jesus. Matthew is very intentional in introducing this early on in his story. In chapter 10, as he introduces the 12 apostles, he tells us even there that Judas was the one who would betray Jesus. For Matthew, it has been important that this lie in the background of everything that we have read and seen, the knowledge that there's a wolf in sheep's clothing, that there's a sleeper cell in the apostolic band. And we have watched as that betrayal has come into focus most bitterly at the end uh, of chapter, uh, at the beginning of chapter 26, when we have watched G Judas go and make his deal with the devil and sell Jesus for those 30 pieces of silver. And we have watched how Judas has gone down deeper then to cynically dip his hand in the bowl at the Last Supper with Jesus in that covenant of friendship. We have seen Judas lead the lynch mob to Jesus. And we have seen him seal the thing with insult and humiliation, handing Jesus over to his abusers with a sign of respect and adoration. And in sharp contrast, we've seen Peter. Now, yes, he's been woefully mistaken, both about Jesus and about himself, but there's been something of a lovability about his mistakes, something of a, maybe a roguishness about his impetuosity. We've seen Peter. We've known that he is well-intentioned. We know that behind his mistakes, there's this desire to, to make it all fit, to make sense of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two very different stories, two very different tra trajectories. But at, at this moment, Judas and Peter really stand in, in exactly the same position. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's done it horribly. He's done it uniquely. He's pray, played that, that vital part in laying the foundations for the execution of, of Jesus. But you understand, Peter, at this point, he has betrayed Jesus too. Now, it's different, but it's, it's no less dramatic. It's no less serious. It's no less horrifying and heartbreaking. 
Peter has, you remember from last week, not only lied about his association with Jesus, but he has gone on so far as to call upon God to bear witness to the veracity of his claim that he does not know Jesus. And then he has gone even further to invoke a curse from God upon himself if what he is saying is untrue. By the time the rooster crows in verse 75, Peter is in just as awful a spiritual state as Judas is. Peter has blasphemed. Peter has attempted to make God an accomplice in his deception. Peter has taken the Lord's name in vain. He has broken the, second, the, the, the third commandment in his desperate attempt to evade scrutiny. Both Peter and Judas at this moment have betrayed Jesus because they have considered themselves to be more important than Jesus. Both of them have betrayed Jesus because they have considered what happens to them as more important than what happens to Jesus. You remember what David had said in Psalm 41, verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That image of lifting the heel, it's a, it's a Hebraic image of betrayal that has been rooted in deception. Both of these men are guilty of that. Judas has deceived and betrayed Jesus, but so has Peter. These two men stand guilty of essentially the same crime. And they both at this moment are heartbroken. The weight of what they have done has come crashing down on both of these men. As the rooster crowed, Peter's adrenaline bubble bursts, and he remembers Jesus' words to him on the Mount of Olives, and he's devastated by what he has done. But Judas here, too, has come to the realization of what it is that he has done, and he is devastated by it. Now, unlike Peter, we don't know what triggered it for him, but something did. Something in the course of that night has, has given him this deep change of heart. Right? One commentator speculated that Judas' remorse is triggered by a realization of what his actions have led to. R.T. France writes, if he had been motivated by a desire to precipitate action that would lead to Jewish independence, he, saw, he now saw that nothing of that sort was going to happen. If, as we have seen, he had simply tried to get what he could out of it all, then he now saw that the damage he had done was out of all proportion to the small gain that he had made. It's speculation. We don't know, but whatever it was, Judas now is, is broken, and he's desperate, just like Peter, crushed by the weight of the realization of what he's done and 
And Judas comes and he turns to his pastors. He comes to the chief priests and the elders and he confesses his sin to them. He comes and he confesses to them that he has broken the sixth commandment, that he has betrayed innocent blood. He comes to the, to the spiritual shepherds of Israel, and he tells them that he is under conviction of sin, that he has is, he is, he is killed an innocent man, that he has broken the commandment of, of God. Right? If there was any notion of a righteous motive that underlay the betrayal of Jesus, it's, it's gone now. Right? If there was any glimpse that his betrayal of Jesus might be driven by, by an honest opinion that Jesus was in danger of doing more harm to the cause of Jewish libera uh, liberation than good, or that Jesus had so diverted from the first century preconception of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do that Judas had concluded that he was a blasphemer who deserved death. If there was any notion of any glimpse of righteousness that may have lain behind what Judas had done, it's gone now. There's no self-justification here. There, there's no excuse. There's no way of rationalizing it. Judas knows that he has, he has sinned, that he has broken the commandment, that what he has done has been wholly unrighteous. And so clearly and boldly he comes, he comes to the men who were called to be his pastors. He comes to the religious leaders and he confesses his sin to them. But instead of finding pastoral counsel and comfort, instead of being pointed to the gospel as it is explained and elaborated in the Old Testament, instead of being consoled and comforted and pastored through this realization, Judas is just met with a cold indifference. These men don't care about Judas. And if, if we thought these religious leaders were wicked up until now, they sink even lower here. They leave stricken Judas to his anguish, and they respond cruelly, what is it to us? See to it yourself. We don't care. You've done your job. You've performed your, your function. We don't care. It's clear now that Judas has just been a tool in the hands of these men, these men who are using their religion to gain power and prestige for themselves. And now that they are done with him, they just discard him. And Judas is, is utterly without hope, and he despairs, and he's consumed by his regret. And, and so he goes, and he throws his, his money into the temple, and, and he goes out, and utterly devoid of the hope of redemption, he hangs himself. And that's how the story of Judas ends. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's dark. It's horrible. Just like every one of these vignettes, Matthew brings us here, and he holds us down, and he says, look at this. And see here the absolute hatefulness of sin. See the utter corruption that it brings in. See here the, the bare and, and ugliness of sin, the wretchedness of, of sin. Look at it, at the chief priests and the elders. 
These men who still consider themselves to be pious and devout men. Men who, who are worried about what to do with this blood money. Trying to figure out what to do. It can't go into the treasury because it's blood money. But this is the same money that they got out of the treasury in order to do this. It's blood money because they made it blood money. But still convinced of their own self-righteousness, they strain at their gnats about the treasury regulations while swallowing the camel of not only murdering Jesus, but now callously discarding a man in a desperate spiritual need. It's horrible. It's dark. It's twisted. But Matthew wants us to look at it. He wants us to hold our attention here for a moment. And he does it because he, he wants us to see the wretchedness of the chief priests and the elders. But, but more, he, he wants us to look at Judas. And he wants us to see Judas specifically in comparison with Peter. He wants us to put these men who have essentially committed the same crime, who have dreadfully, deceitfully betrayed Jesus, he wants us to put them side by side. He wants us to put these two men side by side who are now both feeling deep-seated remorse at the choices they have made, but he wants us to see that these two men resolve their remorse in far different ways. Peter coming through this to be restored and forgiven, and Judas utterly hopeless ending his own life. Matthew wants us to see that the difference is that Peter knew Jesus, and Judas didn't. Peter saw grace and mercy in Jesus. Peter knew that in Jesus there is to be found grace even for the, the greatest of, of sins, grace even for the greatest of, of sinners, for all that Peter got wrong about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And he got an awful lot wrong. For all of his errors and his misapplication, Peter understood this, that there is to be found in Jesus grace and forgiveness even for the greatest of sinners. For all of his mistakes in applying the Old Testament expectation to Jesus, Peter knew that in Jesus the new covenant reality was being fulfilled, and that in Jesus God's promise to forgive our sins and remember them no more was coming to its glorious realization. And so Peter knew his sin. It gripped him. It devastated him. It broke him. But Peter also knew Jesus. And so Peter had hope. Peter had a sure and certain expectation that in Jesus, even his cowardly, self-focused, deceptive betrayal could be forgiven. It's that knowledge that keeps Peter with the disciples. It's that knowledge that brings Peter with John to the tomb on that first day of the week. It's that knowledge that compelled Peter to dive off the side of his boat when he sees Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's that knowledge that drives Peter to look into the face of Jesus and tell him three times that he loves him. Peter knows Jesus. He knows his sin, and, 
and it breaks him, and it devastates him, but he knows Jesus, and, and that's the difference. Peter sins greatly against Jesus here, but he sins against the one that he loves and the one that he never stops loving, and so he's compelled to come to Jesus and to trust that through him there is forgiveness even for his betrayal in that courtyard. But there is none of that in Judas. Judas didn't love Jesus. In fact, Judas didn't know Jesus. For all the time that Judas had spent with Jesus, seeing what Peter had seen and hearing what Peter had heard, Judas had been deaf and blind to all of it. Consumed by his preconceptions and determined to use Jesus as a tool to gain his own advantage and to simply be cast away when no longer useful. You understand what's going on here. What, what, how Judas is being treated by the chief priests and the elders mirrors how Judas has just treated Jesus. Judas had only seen Jesus as a tool, as a tool to be used in order to get what he wanted to get, and then to be discarded when he was done with him. Judas was a man consumed by his desire to build his own kingdom. Judas had spent, as someone once put it, Judas had spent three years in the greatest seminary the world has ever seen, and he hadn't understood a word of what he had heard. At the end of it all, Judas didn't know Jesus. Judas didn't know the grace and the mercy that was to be found in Jesus. And so, when Judas is filled with remorse, when Judas is convicted of his sin, when Judas is broken by the realization of what he has just done, he has nowhere to turn. Peter will run to Jesus, and he will be forgiven and restored, but Judas has nowhere to run, and so he's crushed under the weight of his own sin. He is a man who is utterly without God and without hope in this world. He knew that he had sinned, but he had no conception of how that sin might be forgiven. Judas was a man who was remorseful, but he was not a man repentant. He regretted his actions, but he did not turn to the only one who could forgive those actions. You see, we have to understand the difference between regret and repentance. Right? Both of these men regretted what they had done, but only Peter's regret moved into repentance. Regret is a feeling. Repentance is an action. It is a turning away from our sin. It is a forsaking of our sin, but vitally it is a turning to Jesus. Judas wanted to turn away from his sin, but he had nowhere to turn to. And so there was remorse without repentance. There was regret without repentance. And so he was hopeless. And Matthew lifts this up, and he makes us look at it, and he makes us see this heartbreaking end to, to Judas, because he, he doesn't want us to make the same mistake. 
Right, as Matthew is bringing his gospel to a close, he is, he is slowing down the narrative. He's bringing us into these vignettes, and he is confronting us again and again and again with the reality and the horrors and the depths of our sin. And he does, a, does it because he wants to startle us into hearing the message of the gospel that he is writing. He wants us to see our deep sinfulness but He wants us to see Jesus, the one in whom our sins can be forgiven. He wants us to see, as Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, known as the, the heavenly doctor, said, He wants us to see that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. He wants us to see by holding these two men up side by side, two men who have committed the same sin, who are guilty of essentially the same crime. He wants to show us it and, and say, look, it does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how you have sinned against Christ. It does not matter how you have denied Him. It does not matter how you have lifted your heel against Him. If you have tried your best to kill Him, to push Him out of your life, to deny Him lordship of your life, it does not matter if you have tried to kill him by proxy, by persecuting his church, or humiliating his people. Listen, Matthew says there, there is no need to despair. Judas despaired because he didn't see Jesus, and Matthew is, is crying to us through these pages, look at Jesus. See him, see him as he is, and see that in him there is Grace, even for a wretch like you. Without Him, there's no hope. Without Him, we're brought into the darkness and we're left there. Without Jesus, we're, we're just broken by our sin. We're crushed under the weight of it. But Matthew's saying, you, you, don't, you don't need to be. Look at Jesus and see the forgiveness of sins that is found in him, Matthew is pleading to us, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience let you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. This He gives you, tis the Spirit's glimmering beam. See your need of Jesus and run to Him, and you will be forgiven. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, these are difficult passages that we find ourselves in. But we pray that your Spirit would continue to help us to see the gospel as they are revealed here. Our Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us the conviction of our sin, but by that glimmering beam of your Spirit, you would lead us out to see Jesus and to lay hold of Him by faith. Oh, Father, if there's any here this morning who have not yet done that, I pray that they would, that by your Spirit you would convict them of their sin and that you would lead them to Jesus.
Lord, we pray for our loved ones who do not yet know Christ. We pray that you would convict them of their sin, that they would be broken by the realization of what they have done, but that they would then run to Jesus. Oh, Father, help us to be like Matthew, to not gloss over the wretchedness of our state in sin, but instead, knowing its awful reality, to go out and to bid people to come and rest in Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.